If you're ready to lose weight, it's time to stop dieting and let Noom put psychology to work. Unlike restrictive crash diets, detox cleanses, or any of the other questionable weight loss fads on the market, Noom's award-winning program helps you form sustainable habits that last. With Noom, no food group is off limits, and there's no complicated calorie counting either. Instead, Noom's cognitive behavioral approach helps you better understand and manage your relationship with food, one meal at a time. Whether your goal is to feel more energized, boost your mood, or finally lose those five pounds for good this time, Noom gives you the tools to make it happen. It takes just 10 minutes a day. And because Noom is tailored to your goals and based on leading evidence-based psychology and nutrition science, you always get the expert guidance and support you need to make lasting progress. Start building healthy habits today. Sign up for your trial at Noom.com balance. That's N-O-O-M dot balance. Winning comes in all shapes and sizes. It's different for everyone. One thing is certain, every day there's an opportunity for a win. Just like scratchers from the Virginia Lottery. Everyday grab-and-go, everyday giftable, everyday fun. It's where anticipation meets instant gratification. Like the new Virginia Lottery Scratcher High Roller Blackjack, with a chance to win up to 10 times your prize. Now, that's an everyday win. Drive to a retailer near you. Odds of winning any prize, 1 in 4.16. Hey there, guys. Wanted to tell you about something new. I've launched a Patreon account, patreon.com slash Andrew Brand. People have asked about getting more content, more insight, more information from me, and now that's available through various tiers. If you're able to join on patreon.com, you can get shout outs from me. You can get the Business of Sports podcast transcripts. You can get Ask Andrew questions, weekly newsletters, all kinds of ways to interact with me, including a monthly conversation about whatever you want to talk about, jobs in the sports industry, breaking into sports. It's all available now on patreon.com. Andrew Brandt, if you're able, please join, select your tier, and be able to have further content and interaction with me. Patreon.com slash Andrew Brandt. I hope you join. And welcome to another edition of the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. This is really a special edition I have Maria Konnikova, the author of the new book that's out this week called The Biggest Bluff. What a great book. What I learned, how to pay attention, master myself, and win about playing poker, but it's much deeper than that. The renowned psychologist and author Maria Konnikova is on the podcast this week. First, I want to give a rant about what's going on in sports right now. Haven't given a branch rant in a while, just a quick one. The world of sports is colliding, obviously, with the world of health. We are four and a half months into this COVID-19. We are seeing infections by the dozen in sports, including college athletes as well as pro. The NFL, of course, names like Von Miller, Ezekiel Elliott, Kareem Jackson have come out in addition to several other names not released. Of course, college football programs seem to be shutting down by the day in terms of LSU and Clemson and Kansas State. The NFLPA has put out a word to players to not practice in groups. This is serious. And maybe it's not serious in terms of deleterious, deleterious results from an infection because maybe they're young and healthy and asymptomatic and no one's having any severe trouble with it. But it is an issue, and it really brings me back to always the name of this podcast, the name of my column, the name of my expertise. That's the business of sports, because this is business, and all these leagues are going. Remember in March, one positive test, one, Rudy Gobert of the Utah Jazz shut down 
sports. Basically, Adam DeSilver's decision to shut down the NBA that evening was a start of a cascade of announcements in pro and college sports to shut down, and they've been shut down. Now they're ramping back up. Everyone's ramping back up. MLS, NBA, NHL, Major League Baseball assume they can work out the financials. And of course, college football and NFL, and doing so without any vaccine on the horizon. And in contrast to March, hundreds of positive tests, not one. And it doesn't appear that any of these leagues will shut down with more positive tests. What are we doing here? Well, what we're doing, and I think we need to be honest about it as adults and say what we're doing is is prioritizing the business of sports over the complete adherence to the health and safety of players. Listen, health and safety in players is important to all these leagues. I get it. There are reams of paper being uh, put out with protocols for social distancing, for guidelines, for how to operate inside in the NBA and NHL and MLS case, the bubble, and to operate without a bubble in the NFL and other sports. I get it. But all that is mitigation of risk. It is not elimination of risk. So what we're hearing from sports leagues, even though they're not willing to say it, is we will mitigate the health risk as much as we can, but we are not disrupting our business completely. It's a natural disruption to lose fans. It's a natural disruption to have partial seasons, all the things going on in sports. But no one in the midst of all these infections and all the talk about the virus staying around, maybe even surging again in the fall, no one's shutting down. And if we're going to be honest with ourselves, what we have to believe is this is not going away. If they were doing something with the total health and safety of the players as either the only priority or the highest priority, which is stated by these leagues, they would not play. They simply would not play. But they're going to play. And, and this is the point. Don't tell us about the health and safety of players, let alone staff, being the number one or only or highest priority of these teams or leagues, because it's not. Because if it were, they would take 2020 off, hope for a vaccine in 2021, and get at it. But it's not, because the business, and speaking to my expertise, the NFL, they're not going to shut down a $15 billion business. And everything we've heard from the NFL from day one in March Full speed ahead, free agency, draft, schedule release, season, no alterations in the schedule, not admitting to less than full stadiums yet. Amazing. And so I think we need to be honest that leagues need to treat us, people, patrons, fans, media, sponsors, vendors, everyone, as adults. And the honest truth is we are not optimizing for player health. We are mitigating the best we can, but optimization would be not playing. And the real issue is business. We're not going to disrupt a $15 billion business, which is going to be less, obviously, because of lack of fans, or in baseball, or in basketball. or in Basketball and hockey were basically done with their seasons, 80%, but they're not giving it up. 
So no one's really shutting down except leagues that have no resources like the XFL or minor league baseball. So that's where we are. My point is this. Don't tell us health and safety is priority number one. Priority number one is business. I get it. I get it. Perhaps more than anyone in in media. I get it. But that's what this is about. Okay. Let's get to the podcast this week. I'm honored to have Maria Konnikova. For those of you who don't know her, she's a fantastic writer. I have been reading this book, The Biggest Bluff, that comes out this week, and I am enraptured, voraciously reading it as it's ostensibly about poker. But what it's really about is going through journeys, going through humility, learning. She trains, if that's the right word, with Eric Seidel, this master poker player who seems completely unassuming, completely humble, and tells her how to how to deal with poker. Now, there's obviously the ins and outs of poker itself, but it's more about reading people. It's more about playing the game. It's more about getting the reps in. And just as Eric tells her all the time, just play. Just do it. And it's really not just about poker. It's about the science of skill, the psychology of outsmarting people. Uh, it really talks a lot about humility. Um, and I'm just, I'm just really impressed with Maria Konnikova and having her on the podcast is really a joy. Uh, if you haven't heard of her, the books she's done before, Mastermind, How to Think Like Sherlock Holmes. She talks about con men. She talks about confidence games. And then the next book is called The Confidence Game, Why We Fall For It Every Time. She has no background in poker. She asked Eric Seidel or told him, I don't even know how many cards are in the deck. She took off from her life to learn poker, called herself, I think, Psychic Chick, because it turns out players are, are less uh, aggressive when they know they're playing a woman. That was her online name. Anyway, I won't spoil it for you. I want you to hear from her. Without further ado, the author of the book out this week called The Biggest Bluff, the inimitable Maria Konnikova. Don't know where to begin with this guest. I think we'll start on how we got connected. A mutual friend of ours, David Epstein, the incredible author and writer, the, the, the book I keep reading over and over again called Range. And maybe we'll start there, Maria, because I really found a lot of um, empathy reading Range because I'm one of these people that never really settled down into one singular track and have done a lot of different things and enjoyed that and hopefully had some success. And when I start to get into all the things that you've done, I think about David's work as well and the range that you have where you can call yourself a writer, a psychologist, a poker player, uh, a, a Russian linguist. I mean, there are just so many things. So tell us a little bit about yourself in that in that mode, in terms of the range that David Epstein talked about so well. Absolutely. Absolutely. First, um, let me just echo your love for David. He is just an extraordinary writer and thinker. And I remember when he first started working on range, back then it wasn't called range. Um, I think it was called Roger versus Tiger. Um, Mm. I like range much better as a title, don't you? Yes, I I do. It it captures it much better. (laughs) 
<laughs> but back then, um, he and I were talking about it because it was very interesting. He, um, I really love that he tried to kind of put put to bed this myth that we need to specialize early and go deep in order to be great. And the reason we'd been talking about it so much earlier is that I'd actually written a piece for The New Yorker um, about deliberate practice and Anders Ericsson's work and had found myself at an impasse um, with Dr. Erickson that we just couldn't solve because um, I was, you know, arguing for all of these other factors and David really helped me with that research. And I think that it's funny. I wasn't thinking explicitly of his work when I, you know, when I started trying all of these things, but my, um, my motto in life or one of my mottos in life has always been, you know, to not try to predict the future and to just follow my passion and try to do what I do well. So something that my parents taught me from a very early age is that um, we came from the Soviet Union. I was four years old when, when we left the Soviet Union and it was still the Soviet Union then. Um, the Berlin Wall had not yet fallen. Um, and they said, you know, we came here so that you could do what you want to do so that you could be who you want to be and not be constrained by the fact that you're Jewish in the Soviet mm. Union, that you have all of these opportunities that are just cut off for you. And so it was one of these things where I was always really eager to, to pursue my, my passions to, to the greatest extent of my abilities, because I felt like I'd been given this very precious opportunity that by coming to the United States from the Soviet Union, you know, I just had this world that I wouldn't have otherwise had. I was always very conscious of it. And so, you know, I became, when I graduated from college, I thought, you know, I want to be a writer, but I don't have any money. I don't have any connections. And I went through, I think, five jobs in my first year out of college. I mm. worked as an advertising copywriter. I worked as a bartender. I mean, I did it all. Um, worked in television. That actually stuck for a number of years before, before I transitioned to writing full time. But first, I went to graduate school. And people along the way would always tell me, oh, don't do this. You're ruining a very successful line here. You know, why did you get a Harvard degree only to become a bartender? That's stupid. Don't do that. You know, have a traditional career path. Why are you going to graduate school if you don't know you don't want to be a professor? Don't do that. That's very silly. Why are you quitting this to do that? Um, and most recently, are you insane that you are leaving the New Yorker to pursue poker? Um, <laughs> and every single time I thought, Yes, maybe I'm insane. Um, I don't know, but I just want to see where it takes me. And I think it's helped me be a much better person in many respects because I'm willing to do that and to see what happens and to take the risk. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. And then I'll figure it out one step at a time. You can't ever plan how your career is going to go. I think that's such hu such hubris to think you can. I know this resonates so much personally, Maria, because as someone who maybe a similar path, though I didn't emigrate, grew up here in Washington, D.C., went across country to Stanford, back to Washington, D.C. for law school. And there was my track, right? Great college, great law mm -hmm. school. I'm going to be a lawyer. Well, that never happened. 
uh, I got into sports, I got into media, I got into representing players, I got into team, I got, I would have never, ever had the experiences that I've had and lucky enough to have if I just stayed on that single track. And I just remember a comment from a admissions director at Stanford that sort of rings with me to this day. And it's kind of what we're both talking about, which is allow for serendipity in your life. You never know. These careers are not linear and they go all over the place. And you're a shining example of that. So I, I certainly, Absolutely. it resonates what you, what you've done. And I think you're like me in that people sometimes try to box me and you in terms of, okay, doing an interview with him or her, doing a, a quote about him or her, where, where, what's the ID, you know, for me, mm-hmm. is it lawyer, is it media, is it team guy, is it professor, is it, and I always tell people, just pick whatever you want, you know, I don't care, You're, you have your choice, <laughs> your own um, but I, I think it's great, and, and I, you mentioned your time at Harvard, I do want to pick up on something I read where you did some work, and you were in fact mentored by the great author and psychologist Steven Pinker. And I don't want this podcast to really be much about what's going on in the world right now, but there is a definite (laughs) sort of pessimism about the world right now. And people like Steven Pinker are the, I guess, the, the lights in the darkness telling us, look how great things are compared to the past. So if you could talk about your work for Pinker during your time at Harvard. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, he is someone who I wanted to work with from the time I was actually in high school and took my first psychology class and read some of his work and thought, oh, my God, what beautiful writing, um, what beautiful insights into the human mind. And at the time he was at MIT and I thought, you know, when I get to Harvard, I'll take some classes at MIT so that I can study with him. But, you know, it was meant to be. So he uh, he was actually hired up by Harvard my freshman year, so I never had to make the journey to MIT, and I ended up taking his classes, and he um, became my undergraduate advisor, which already says something about him, because someone like Steven Pinker does not need to take undergraduate advisees, um, and yet he does, and he loves students, and he loves teaching, which I think actually begins to answer your question about kind of his positivity. He really sees potential in people and wants to nurture it and wants to allow them to be the best they can be. And, you know, I think a lot of people have said, oh, you know, you're blind. I can't believe you You are closing your mind to all of these horrible things that are happening. I think his point is a little bit different. It's that, yes, things there are terrible things happening right now, and there have been terrible things in the past. When you're in the moment, you can't see the sweep of history. You can't see what's happening. You can't have the bird's eye view. But if you look at the data, which does have that kind of view, um, the data show that a lot of things have gotten better and over the long term are getting better. And so, you know, I, th- I think we need those optimists and the people who can point out, yes, everything is terrible right now. And it feels like the world is just going to absolute hell. And I agree with that. But please don't give up and don't despair. And don't say that, you know, this is, this is all terrible. This is all horrible. Say, yes, this is bad, but we can get there. We can make it better because look at history. You know, we've gotten through world wars. We've gotten through famines and genocides and 
all of these horrible things. And yet here we still are. Um, and here, hopefully, we still will be in 500 years. I want to move to some of your works. The Sherlock Holmes is, seems to be such a large figure in your life. I read that you were reading his works at such a young age. And then, of course, your first book in January 2013, Mastermind, How to Think Like Sherlock Holmes. Talk a little bit about Sherlock Holmes and, and what, why <laughs> such an impact. And this book translated into, I believe, something like 17, 19 languages. What is it about yeah. it that led you to write this? And what's a synopsis about that, your first book, before we get to later works? Sherlock Holmes is someone who's been with me for a very long time. When I was very little, um, my dad used to read to us um, out loud, and we'd have one night a week, Sunday, where all of the kids would gather. Um, there were four of us, and we'd sit around, and he'd read to all of us. Um, and I just, I, all of the books were wonderful. We read all these adventure stories, and, you know, The Three Musketeers, and Count of Monte Cristo, you know, books that were really kind of epics and wonderful for, for kids with imaginations. But I just remember Sherlock Holmes. I remember the day that he opened that book. And what struck me about it wasn't just the fact that these were just great, fun mystery stories, but the thinking that you could actually think through these things. And I, I remember I wanted to be Sherlock Holmes. You know, I was listening to him and said, oh, my God this is what I want. <laughs> you know, I want to be able to just look at something and solve it and go deep and figure out all of these people. Look at him. He knows how people work. Um, if you think back, you know, it makes sense. Sherlock Holmes is part psychologist, part writer. He has a lot of the elements of things that ended up shaping my life. Um, and there was one scene that actually really struck me when I was little and that was when Sherlock Holmes asked Watson how many stairs lead up to 221B Baker Street, and Watson didn't know. And Holmes says, well, that's the difference between us. You only see, I both see and observe. And I remember even when I was really mm. little, that just really struck a chord. And I thought, wow, oh, my God, I'm like Watson. I only see. And somewhere it just lodged in my mind. Many years later, um, when I was just starting out as a writer, I wanted to write about mindfulness. And this was, you know, 2010. Mindfulness was not yet a buzzword. Most people didn't really know what it was. Um, and I'd become really interested in Buddhism and in a lot of these different things um, and wanted to write about it. And so I was thinking, okay, how do I translate this for a general audience? How do I take this concept and make it into something concrete that people will grasp, will understand, that will make it make sense? how I try to approach writing you know, about any topic. And out of nowhere, this scene just came back to my mind. And I hadn't reread the stories in years, but I Googled it. Luckily, you know, we have great search capabilities and found the scene and reread the entire story and thought, oh my God, this is perfect. You know, this difference between mm -hmm. seeing and seeing and observing is the difference between mindlessness and mindfulness. Um, and so I ended up writing this, this piece. It did very well. Um, and I also, it made me want to revisit Sherlock Holmes. And I started rereading all of the stories and thought, this is just, this is a, a treasure trove 
look at all of these insights into the human mind. I want to write about all of them. And that's when I realized that this was probably a book. And the book ended up centering on that central, on that first piece that I wrote, mindfulness, because I think mindfulness is actually at the heart of how Holmes is able to do what he does. So I talked about all of the different parts of thinking of Sherlock Holmes, you know, the deduction, the induction, the creativity, you know, the this, the that. But the thing that underlies all of it is mindfulness, is presence, is truly paying attention to your world. And I think that's something that's actually informed my writing ever since. How do you apply something like that to decision-making, I guess, in the quote-unquote real world? Maybe an example or two where some of that mindful thinking like Sherlock Holmes can be applied to, to the listeners? I mean, I think that an example that's very relevant right now is actually being aware of your own cognitive biases. That comes from mindfulness. Mindfulness isn't just about paying attention to the world. It's paying attention to the internal world, to yourself, to your thoughts, to your reactions, to how you process things. And that's just central. It's crucial to good decision making. When you meet someone new, for instance, I mean, you constantly and within milliseconds, you formed lots and lots of judgments about them. And a lot of them are probably biased by, not probably, are definitely biased by your past experiences, by different elements of your background, by who you are. Um, and who you've met in the past, you know, even before you even meet someone, their name might evoke certain things for you. And I've, I've written a lot about how these biases work. And unless you're aware of them and unless you kind of work to correct them, they're going to influence your decisions in suboptimal ways and in ways that don't reflect reality. And one of the key steps around that is to be mindful to actually be aware of this and to learn to pay attention to your thoughts and to the associations that happened in your mind um, on an instantaneous basis. Just think through the chatter that goes on in your head. You don't often stop to think about what logical steps drew me to say this or to think about this. You know, you might be standing in front of the fridge and suddenly you're thinking, you know, about um, that trip you took to Spain last summer. How did you get there? Well, okay, now you start unraveling that process. So that's just like a very mundane example. But now you meet someone and you are actually making decisions that matter. You're making judgments that matter. And the same thing is happening unless you stop and actually are mindful and pay attention to your inner processes. And I just talked about person perception because to me right now, that's actually, that feels very relevant. Um, but this applies to absolutely all elements of your decision making. You know, why did you... Why did you buy that stock and sell the other stock? Well, some of it you might think all of it is rational, but some of it might have to do with the weather because there's a lot of cloud cover. And we actually know that stock markets tend to go down on cloudy days um, or when your favorite sports team loses and it's completely irrational and you don't see the connections. You just process information differently. Being mindful, actually, there's been work that shows that you can be very easily debiased of these specific things if your attention is drawn to it. But usually there's not someone there to say, hey, you know, is it cloudy today? Did your sports team lose or win? Um, is that influencing your decision-making? You have to learn to do that yourself and to actually think through your own thoughts um, and your own process to that level. And that comes from being mindful. And this really gets to the heart of what I just find so impressive about your work is this whole idea of 
being conned and con games. And uh, I think you even had a segment on your podcast called, is that bullshit or not? Uh, I yep. just think this, this, <laughs> this is fascinating to me because we're all conned in different ways. And we all, as you suggest, we may even all have the power to con, but your second book came out in January, 2016, the confidence game and why, why we fall for it, dot, 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 every time. And I know mentor of yours, Eric Larson, I just think that his quote in there just struck me. It's, it's startling and disconcerting read that you should make, that should make you think twice every time a friend of a friend offers you the opportunity of a lifetime. Okay. Talk about being conned, the, the confidence game. And we're not, we're not even getting to poker yet. We'll, we'll get there. But what, what is it about us and what is it about your skill to see through this uh, that you can lend uh, advice to us? I think that the reason, what it is about us, and this actually, it's funny, this actually gets to the start of our conversation and kind of the need for optimism. Because I think yeah. the thing about us that makes us so vulnerable to con artists is our hopefulness and our need to believe and our need to believe in something. And con artists take advantage of that. They take advantage of our hopeful nature of the, of the, the process that allows us to improve, which is also sometimes a cognitive bias. We see the world as rosier than it is. And we think that, you know, tomorrow is going to be better than today. Otherwise, what's the point? We see ourselves as slightly better than we actually are. So if you were to ask someone to rate us on a number of traits, and then you were to ask us to rate ourselves, the ratings wouldn't match. We'd actually see ourselves as much more positive than someone who knew us very well would see us. And this is incredibly adaptive. This is actually a very good thing, because the only people who don't have this optimism bias are the clinically depressed. So that actually tells you something about how essential that bias is. It protects us. It's why we have mental health. And if that bias disappears, well, you're, you're going to run into issues. It's not good to see the world as it actually is and to see yourself as you actually are. Um, it's going to it's going to be really, really shocking. Con artists realize this. And con artists sell you the version of reality that you already believe in, not the version that actually exists. And so it sounds great to you because it already appeals to what you intuitively think is true. They're amazing psychologists. They're amazing storytellers. They profile people and they'll tailor the con to you and they'll tell you a story and they'll tell you the most beautiful story that, of course, you're going to believe in. This is true. You know, they could be selling you a business opportunity or a health cure or telling you, you know, that they're incredibly sick and you need to donate money and you will because you're a kind and good and giving person. I actually, one of the things that I try, one of the myths I try to bust in the book um, is that victims of con artists are gullible or stupid or greedy. Um, I just think that's simply just completely not true um, because oftentimes, usually con artists actually appeal to our best instincts and very honest people get conned all the time um, because they're honest. Um, and because they don't think that someone's going to do this to them. And that's, I think it's both incredibly disconcerting to realize that basically any person can get conned and that no amount of intelligence, no amount of skepticism is going to protect you. I can get conned, even though I spent three years with con artists and studying them and studying the psychology of how it works. I'm still 
a great victim, maybe even a better one, because I might be a little too confident of my ability to sniff this out. Um, so it's disconcerting on the one hand. On the other hand, um, I think it makes us human. I don't think that we'd want to be the type of person who couldn't be conned, uh, because that just says that we're someone who has no human connection, who has no hope, um, who has just no positive feelings at all. Ricky Jay actually put it incredibly well once in an interview with the New York Times a number of years ago. He said something along the lines of, I wouldn't want to be I wouldn't want to live in a world where we couldn't be conned because that would be a world where you didn't believe in anyone or anything. Mm. And I think that that actually sums it up pretty well. That's well said. I think about, and again, I don't know if these, these examples fall into the quote unquote con artist, but I do think about all the smart and successful people that gave money to Bernie Madoff uh, many years ago. And of course, it's gone, and he was able to. Is that right to sort of suggest he was able to con them in the way that uh, that you're speaking of? Absolutely, absolutely. I think if in that, that's a great example because it really shows the victim blaming aspect. So many people blamed Madoff's victim, not Madoff. They said, "Well, you were stupid. You should have seen this." Hmm. And what I want to say is actually a lot of these people weren't stupid and shouldn't have seen it. I mean, a lot of them just trusted him because others trusted him. They gave him their entire life savings. They weren't particularly wealthy people. And he just told such a good story and he told it so well. I mean, the guy didn't accept money. People had to beg him for years to actually mm. allow him. Just they wanted, they just begged him to take their money. That's such a brilliant tactic of very good con artists. You know, they, they create this illusion of scarcity and they don't take anything from you. You beg for them to take it, you know, you give it to them with open right. arms. And I also just want you to do, and by you, I mean one broad you, to do a thought exercise. If you think of yourself as a good, savvy investor and someone recommends Bernie Madoff and, you know, you do your research and it seems like this guy's legit, give him some money and you start getting good returns. What do you say? Uh-oh, returns are really good, red flag. Or I told you I'm savvy. I know how to pick the guy who's going to give me good returns <laughs> and look right. at this. This is amazing. And it's very hard when you're in that situation to actually do an objective analysis. It's much easier from the sidelines. And it's also exactly what we just talked about with Madoff and so many others. It's like your friend, someone you know, someone you trust, mm -hmm. someone you like. They got good returns. They like him. And this happens exactly. in sports, sports all the time, not only with investing in sports where, hey, they, this guy's good, you know, uh, spread it around the locker room. This guy's good. This guy's good. Good with money, but also good with even like steroids. I mean, some of the scandals with steroids, the biogenesis down in Miami where Alex Rodriguez and so many others, I mean, they're going to a little uh, strip mall shack where these are, these are $100 million players getting their steroids from some little back door in a strip mall. But two things. Number one, you're not going to get this stuff at the Mayo Clinic. And, and number two, somebody else got it and had good performance. Mm -hmm. And then somebody else had good performance. And somebody else, their home runs went from 30 to 50. So 
this is what happens. It's what happens. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, don't ever underestimate word of mouth and the power of personal referrals. So many cons operate within friend networks, within, you know, close contact networks, within recommendation networks. And it's so easy to just be a few people removed, but it feels safe because, Oh, well, I know this person who knows the person, so it must be okay. So I actually, you know, when people say, oh, I want to be protected, what do I do? I say, well, you know, there's nothing to do to be protected 100%. But something super simple is don't accept friend requests, for instance, on Facebook or connections Mm -hmm. on LinkedIn of someone you don't know and someone you don't actually know exactly who that is, because that's how networks start being made. Then someone sees, oh, we have a friend in common. I must know this person. Oh, well, two friends in common. All of a sudden, 200 friends in common. This person looks totally legit, right? They're in your friend. Right, right. And, and con artists have actually used that. And what you were saying about sports, I actually, I do write about some sports cons in the book um, and a lot of the biking doping scandals actually mm-hmm. worked that way. And also the reason why they didn't come to light for so long is that a lot of people just didn't want to believe they were true. Well, that's definitely me. I've been watching the Lance documentary and uh, this idea that everyone did it and why are we picking on Lance? But now you see that he was, you know, the dominant player in all this and the intimidator and just a real jerk and real prick. But like you said, everybody... (laughs) was doing it he was doing it the most and he had all these sycophants that would support him and protect him i can see that totally being the way it goes and that's in that sport Mm -hmm. and and it's so it's so difficult to dissent when it's a cultural thing Mm -hmm. It, it really makes it challenging it's so hard you know if you if you look at different areas, if you look at sports, if you look at hedge funds where insider trading becomes a big thing, it's a culture and the culture comes from the top. And when that kind of thing is kind of tacitly accepted or even not even accepted, but sometimes almost required, I hate saying required, but it's something that's that's uh, almost required, right? Because in order mm-hmm. to get these great returns or in order to perform at the sports level that your team wants you to perform, you have to do it. And obviously we do know that in, in terms of spo- uh, sports doping, sometimes there is coercion, like in the Russian doping cases. Um, sometimes right. there is actual requirements, but other times it's just kind of this culture where you feel like, oh, well, it must be okay and I kind of have to do it and all my friends are doing it. But it starts with a con. And it it doesn't make it any less of a con. We'll get back to this fascinating interview with Maria Konnikova in a minute. First, a word from DraftKings. Golf is here. That's right. Another full weekend ahead of golf. And though the trophy's only reserved for the winner, the big cash winnings don't have to be. DraftKings Sportsbook, America's top app, is putting you in the center of the action. Sign-up bonus of $1,000. Don't worry if you're not able to take advantage of last weekend's tournament. The action on the course continues this week. DraftKings Sportsbook is the place to get all your bets in for the tournament. It's a safe, secure, and reliable betting app. You can deposit and withdraw at your convenience. They're offering special odds for the golf tournament this weekend. New new users can get 50 to 1 on the top golfers prior to the tournament start. So download the top-rated DraftKings Sportsbook app. Use code ROSS, all caps, R-O-S-S. When you sign up for a limited time, all new users can get a sign-up bonus up to $1,000. That's right. 
DraftKings Sportsbook is going all out to get you to sign up. A bonus of up $1,000, just enter code ROSS, R-O-S-S, all caps, when you sign up. Only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Must be 21 or older, Colorado only. Bonus comprise the first deposit bonus and a first bet match, each up to $500. Deposit bonus requires 25 times playthrough. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700. Now back to this rollicking interview with the author of The Biggest Bluff, Maria Konnikova. I said, I'm going to lie a little bit. I said we wouldn't. <laughs> well, I'm going to tell the truth that we wouldn't really go into current events, but I do want to bring up a <laughs> the most polarizing figure in the country. Are we, have we, have a population of us been conned by the current president? Is that how he got into the power space that he is in? Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Um, yes. And what exactly did he come? Back when Trump was just elected. Sorry, I interrupted you. Go ahead. I just want to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. So back when Trump was just elected, I wrote a piece for the New Yorker, um, called Donald Trump con artist. And there was a question mark in it because, you know, you have to, as a journalist, I'm very careful and I don't want to make you know, accusations and say, oh, he's definitely a con artist. And at that point, we had a lot of evidence, but there was no, you know, there was nothing concrete. There was no paper. As of now, he's actually committed fraud. I mean, we have seen the documents that he committed real estate fraud, that all sorts of fraudulent things went on. So I think we can definitively say that now there's no, there's no question mark. But the reason I said it um, even back then is that the techniques that he uses, the way that he says totally different things to different people. He tells them, this is what you and I were talking about, you know, how do con artists get us to believe us, to believe them? They tell us what we want to hear. They profile us. They figure out what moves us. What mm. are our hopes? What are our fears? What are our dreams? What are our insecurities? Okay, let me craft the story that fits that. Trump does this beautifully. You know, he will say one thing to one person, turn around and say the polar opposite just as convincingly and make it seem like I'm listening to you and I'm giving you what you want. I'm your president. And the effect that he has is the effect that con artists have. One of the things that I talk about in the confidence game is that once you've been conned, it's actually incredibly difficult to tell victims that they've been conned because mm. oftentimes they refuse to believe it. Um, there's just all of this cognitive dissonance and the resulting dissonance reduction. And they just actually, they just double down. They say, no, this is not a con. Um, I'm not the type of person who'd be, be conned. And they just double down and believe even more and stop listening to reason. Um, I found multiple cases where con artists have actually been caught, have gone on trial, and their victims have paid their legal fees mm. because they think that it's a travesty of justice. Even at that point, they refuse to believe it. They will go on the stand and defend the, the con artist because they think, no, this is a good person. This wasn't a con. This was legitimate. We just got unlucky or, you know, well, this just happened or, you know, they just got framed and they refuse to believe it. And I think that that's what happened and what we see happening with a lot of the Donald Trump supporters and why yelling at them and showing them evidence isn't going to help um, because they're like victims of a cult leader. Um, you have to learn to speak their language and try different approaches. The last chapter of my book is actually about cult exfiltration. Um, uh, it was focused on, focused on a man who 
before he died would uh, infiltrate cults to get people out. So families would hire him. And I think cults are kind of the ultimate con. And he realized you can't do it from the outside. You have to speak the language of the cult. You have to really understand it. So he would actually join. Um, and he, and he, it almost drove him crazy. And he would just, he would go in and, you know, become one of the, become one of the people. And I spoke with a woman who worked for him because sometimes you have to be female and, it was terrible, but they were very successful because ultimately they ended up speaking the language and figuring out how is this person thinking and being able to get at them that way rather than saying, hey, you're a member of a cult, get out, because that's, mm-hmm. that doesn't work because nobody thinks they're a member of a cult. Otherwise, they wouldn't be in it. And <laughs> I think that tr- Donald Trump is kind of a Trump cult. And no matter and all of the evidence against him just makes people say, even more so, oh, no, this means he's definitely not a con artist. He's the real deal. And that, that fits so well with everything he's done, which you try to look at, I think we look at objectively, that's gone south will not affect his following. It just doesn't seem to. And again, you, that, no, it makes even people it. like me and maybe you sort of question, am I seeing this right? Because... All his followers, all his base is even more entrenched after some of the things he's done. Yep. And that's, you know, that's something that you would expect. So your confidence artist model would actually predict this because Mm -hmm. the victims, once you've fallen for the con, you just, you will do all the rationalizing for yourself. Nobody needs to convince you anymore. You are the con artist's best ally. It, it's crazy. Um, but, you know, once you're in it, you believe it. And when Trump and Trump knows this, I mean, that's why he says things like I can be in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot someone um, right. and I'll get away with it. Well, he's basically done the equivalent of that and he's gotten away with it. Okay, <laughs> let's move off. Donald Trump. <laughs> I want to get to poker. And I just find it fascinating I saw that you told the New York Times about your journey into poker that you didn't even know how many cards were in the deck. You had zero interest <laughs> in gambling, let alone poker. But tell us your interest in it and then the research you made. Your, you got in touch with Eric Seidel. You were observing him and others, watching them play. It just seemed to me uh, a real infiltration into the world, and then it led to your abilities. <laughs> Uh, so talk about getting into poker. I think a lot of people listening are intrigued by poker or intrigued by gambling. Uh, we do have a lot of people in sports gaming that listen to the podcast. So uh, take it away. Well, um, as you said, initially I had no interest in poker, and it was just a foreign world to me. I really didn't know how many cards were in a deck. People think I exaggerate <laughs> for you know comic effect, but I really thought that there were 54 of them. I just never really gave it much thought, and so when it came down to it, I just blurted out 54. Um, <laughs> and this was to Eric Seidel, who is one of the greatest poker players in the world and still remembers this and will not let me live it down and still <laughs> jokes to this day that one day when we actually get to play a game with jokers, I'm going to just beat everyone and become the champion of the world. (laughs) So when there are 54 cards in the deck, that's when my moment to shine will come. (laughs) So I initially, um, I came to the game in a very different way from most poker players. I think most poker players are games players. Um, They like games and they get to poker that way. You know, maybe they play chess or magic, the gathering or something like that. And then they, kind of eventually make it to poker. For me, 
it was because I became fascinated by the role of luck in our lives and this question of what can we control, what can't we control, how do we learn to tell the difference, how do we learn to maximize the things we can control and be okay with the things that are just chance that are going to happen that we have no power over. And that's, I knew I wanted to write my next book about that, but I needed a way into the topic. And someone suggested I read John von Neumann's Theory of Games, which is the foundational text of game theory, because I said, you know, this is a really nice framework for looking at chance. You should take check it out. So I started reading that, and I learned that John von Neumann, who's one of the greatest minds of the 20th century, um, one of the inventors of the computer, of the hydrogen bomb, um, I mean, the guy was brilliant. He was a poker player. He was a huge poker player. He loved poker, um, and he hated all other games. And he actually real, realized that poker was going to be a really beautiful model for strategic decision-making in life because poker was a game of incomplete information like life. So there's information that I know, there's information that you know, there's information that we know in common. Um, and then we need to make our decisions based on this and based on the signals that you are giving off because I'm never going to know everything. I'm never going to know what cards you hold. You're, you won't know what cards I hold. We won't know what cards are still to come. There's all of these elements of chance in there and these elements of skill because how do you play this? How do you play the people? How do you bluff? He called it the little tactics of deception. So all of these nuances made him think this is what actual decision-making is. It's not like chess, because chess is a game of perfect information. There's always a correct move. You can solve it. If you give me enough computational power, I will tell you what you're supposed <laughs> to do. Poker isn't like that, because in poker, there is no right move unless the game has been solved, and actually No Limit Texas Hold'em still has not been solved. It's kind of the one of the last frontiers, this golden standard for AI research, because chess has been solved, Go has been solved, all of these strategy games have been solved, but poker remain, remains kind of the, the outlier because it's really difficult to solve a game of incomplete information, especially when there are lots of people playing. And... I thought this is really interesting. If this brilliant guy thought that poker was just this powerful tool of insight into the human mind, let me look into this poker thing. I started reading about it and I just realized this might be the book. Why don't I learn how to play poker? Why don't I get someone really good to teach me? And, you know, I'll aim to play the World Series main event. And that would be a really nice, you know, just spine for the book. And I can explore chance and you know, all of those things that I'm interested about. Um, I can really just explore it through poker, through the book. Um, and that was the initial premise. Obviously, no one knew um, what would happen. I had no idea what would happen. I didn't realize that I'd actually become good, that I'd win an international title, that I'd become a sponsored pro. You know, no one knew that was going to happen. And that wasn't supposed to happen at the beginning. It was supposed to be just, you know, a little foray into this world. But then the book really changed. This is a very, very simple question with, I'm sure, is a long answer. But what makes you so good? <laughs> well, first of all, I think I need to acknowledge that I'm very lucky and <laughs> that I was able to get lucky at crucial moments. 
as they say, you know, you have to be good to win a tournament, but you also have to get lucky. Um, and I definitely got lucky. And if I think back on it, there were moments where I should have gone home and I didn't um, because I lucked out um, or sucked out as the case may be <laughs> in poker terms um, and won a hand I shouldn't have won um, and that it needs to happen. So things have to go your way. But in terms of, I think, the attributes that I bring to the game, um, it probably helps that I not only have a PhD in psychology, but the specific thing I studied was risky decision-making, um, decision-making under conditions of uncertainty in stochastic environments um, and emotional decision-making. So under hot conditions, when you're stressed out, when you're under pressure. So theoretically, I actually studied you know, a lot of the things that are the nuts and bolts of decision-making in poker. Um, I didn't use poker because I didn't know anything about it. We used stock market games, but the two have a lot in common. So I think that that helped. Um, I think the fact that I came with a totally clean slate in the sense of not having any bad habits, not having any preconceptions about how you're supposed to play, as so many people who've kind of been in the world for a long time do, and that I had the best minds in the game teaching me from scratch, but teaching me from a position of just teach me the best way, not correct my mistakes, correct what I'm doing wrong. I think that definitely helped, you know, to have access to Eric Seidel all the time, to have him being willing to coach you. That's huge. And he would actually, as any good coach does, he recognized that he wasn't necessarily the best for, for everything. So he would send me to someone for very specific things. He would say, you know, this is a mathematical question. You should go to Jason Kuhn, mm. who's very good at this specific thing. Um, and Jason would sit down with me. Okay, for this question, you should go to Phil Galfond for this. So he just kept get, giving me these incredible minds. Um, you know, it's a, it, there are lots of sports analogies here where you have probably a main coach and then a coach for different, speci very, very specific elements of your game if you need them. I had a mental coach who helped me with that. Um, so I think that that, the fact that he was so humble and realized I can't teach you everything. I mean, he could teach me everything, but there are better people. And I actually just had the best of the best in absolutely everything. I think that was helpful. And finally, I was willing to work really hard. I mean, for many, many months, I just lived and breathed poker. I went on leave from The New Yorker. I went just completely immersed myself in the game. And mm. seven days a week, you know, eight, nine, 10, 11 hours a day, I would be studying or playing or watching or talking through hands. I would be doing something related to poker. And I think that that was also very helpful. And now we can all read about it. You've got the book coming out June 23rd of this year, June 23rd, coming up soon. The Biggest Bluff. So this is going into everything you just talked about, your immersion into poker uh, and the role chance plays, how to learn to play our best game, even with the odds against us. So I'm, I'm gathering all the things we've talked about so far today really go into your skills at poker in terms of seeing through cons, translating those skills, playing the world more than playing poker itself. Is that <laughs> maybe I'm answering my question in terms of what <laughs> beyond luck and pure chance, what made you so successful here? Well, like I said, I mean, I, I think that 
I think that my background was actually ended up being suited for it, the way I think about things. Um, Mm -hmm. And also the fact that Eric actually taught me really good thought habits. He taught me from the beginning that it wasn't about the outcome, that it wasn't about winning money. It was about the thought process. It was about playing your best game, making the best decisions you can with the information that you have, knowing that that information will never be complete. And being happy if you made the right decision, not being happy if you won. He taught me that there's a big difference. You can win and you made a terrible mistake, but you just got incredibly lucky. You shouldn't be proud of that. That doesn't mean you just played well and you're suddenly a genius. But you can lose and yet you made the absolute correct decision. When the money went in, you were a 75% favorite or whatever it was. 80% 80% favorite. I've actually gotten the money in as a 98% favorite and still lost. You mm. Poker teaches you what that feels like. And that happens. And that's going to happen. And as long as you made the right decision, even if you lost a lot of money, you should be happy. You should be proud of yourself for thinking through it correctly. The fact that Eric actually instilled this in me right away was crucial in the fact that I became successful, I think, because it taught me to look past the outcomes. It taught me to focus on myself. What can I control? I can control how I play the game. I can't control, you know, the weather or the other or the teammates or what else is going on. I can't control that. And sometimes someone's going to slip and something's going to happen. And, you know, shit happens. Sometimes there are I played the best I could and something still happened. You don't blame those things. You don't say, oh my God, I can't believe someone did this. I can't believe you sucked out. How are you still in this hand? And you don't do that. Instead you say, okay, you know, I did everything I could. Let me forget about it. Let me just, everything else doesn't matter because the only thing I can improve, the only thing I can work on is myself, my own process, um, my own approach. That's all. And so that's what I need to focus on. And all the other stuff is just noise or as Eric calls it garbage. And he said, thinking about it and talking to someone else about it, it's like dumping your garbage on someone else's lawn. And I think that's a very good way of thinking about it. It is indeed. And that brings us really sort of full circle to how we started. You're actually bringing mindfulness into poker, which it sounds simple, but I'm not sure how many people do that. Maybe that's part of your success. And speaking of that and sort of being being pigeonholed versus having range. I think you just said it, Mm -hmm. but you're going to keep playing poker and you're going to keep writing, correct? I mean, it sounds like you've had great success at both. You've made hundreds of thousands of dollars playing poker. Why give it up, right? But it's certainly not going to stop you from continuing what you do so well in, in writing and being such a good social scientist. Yes, I think that's right. I mean, why can't I do it all? Why not? Why not, right? No, it's you know, it's. I think you. I think you are very similar in in this respect. I mean, I love being busy and I love doing different things, and mm-hmm. I love exercising different muscles, different parts of myself, challenging myself because I feel like that's how I grow. That's how I become a better person. That's how I become a bigger person. That's how I actually improve at what I do because I end up cross pollinating. I have no idea what skills will end up coming in useful. How do I know that playing poker won't actually make me a better writer in a lot of ways? I actually think it has. And that if I pick up something else and decide to do a totally unrelated project, I have no idea how these things will one day come together. You can't think that way. You can't try to plan and do things because you think they'll be useful. You do them because intrinsically there's something about it that interests you. And then it will become useful somehow you just don't know what the future is going to hold. I think we'll uh, we'll land the plane with that, Maria. This has been great. 
June 23rd, The Biggest Bluff. Your third work comes out, your immersion into the world of poker. And you'll find out if you read this, all the things that Maria's talking about here are so interesting. Really, thanks. And have, for, thanks for coming on the podcast. Really enjoyed it, Maria. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me, Andrew. It's been an absolute pleasure. Really hope you enjoyed the interview, Maria. And uh, get into the book if you're into if you're into poker or even not into poker, which I certainly have not been into. Uh, it's called The Biggest Bluff, How I Learned to Pay Attention, Master Myself, and Win. And that'll do it for this week's edition of The Business of Sports with Andrew Brand. Appreciate all those who follow me on Twitter at Andrew Brand. Apple Podcast rankings and comments are truly appreciated. Music underscoring me is from my son, Sam Brandt, and we're produced by the producer extraordinaire, Brian Neal. I'll be back next week with another edition of The Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. If you're ready to lose weight, let Noom put psychology to work. Noom's award-winning weight loss program takes a cognitive behavioral approach, helping you form sustainable change that lasts. With Noom, no food is off limits, and there's no counting calories either. Instead, Noom gives you the ongoing guidance and support you need to form healthier habits and achieve your goals, all backed by leading evidence-based psychology and nutrition science. Start your trial at Noom.com habit. That's N-O-O-M.com habit. Winning comes in all shapes and sizes. It's different for everyone. One thing is certain. Every day there's an opportunity for a win. Just like scratchers from the Virginia Lottery. Every day grab and go. Every day giftable. Every day fun. It's where anticipation meets instant gratification. Like the new Virginia Lottery Scratcher High Roller Blackjack with a chance to win up to 10 times your prize. Now that's an everyday win. Drive to a retailer near you. Odds of winning any prize, 1 in 4.16.